Is the audio loud enough? Okay. My deep podcast voice. <laughs> I have a deep voice. I don't know whether it's a, a podcast voice, but uh, it's not that deep. <laughs> Could you imagine? <laughs> we are talking in our deep podcast voices. Very monotone. <laughs> Sounds like that Will Ferrell skit. Um, I cannot modulate the sound of my voice. Did you see that? No. It was on his like best hits anyway. Okay. Well, there's one where Obama goes to visit Nelson Mandela. And and Obama's like, hey man, what's up? And Nelson was like, dude, <laughs> if this is gonna work, we need to work on your voice. And, <laughs> and so Obama Obama went out of there being like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is how it's talk now. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. All right, cool. Let's get her started. Hi, fellow geochemists and geochemistry enthusiasts. Welcome to Geochemist Tea, the only podcast for people who love geochemistry with a side of tea. Our mission is to inspire and to shed light on the topics not fancy enough to talk about a conference, but important to delve into. I'm your host, Sam Sure, and this week we're talking with James Buscard about starting from knowing nothing to putting a few holes in it. James Buscard is a principal consultant at Undercover Group. James, welcome to Geochemistry. Hi, Sam. Thanks for having me. So, James, you started off in the environmental side of the industry, moving into exploration and specifically into applying the use of hydrogeochemistry for exploring undercover and later into a management role for a junior explorer. What more can you tell us about your career and how you started out and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, it was perhaps not the traditional path uh, into the industry. I did, I began on the environmental side, largely on compliance and stuff like that. I I did two different intern terms up at BHP's Academy Mine, and we were doing baseline hydrogen chemistry. We were doing pit lake chemistry and you know, tailing chemistry and just lots of compliance type stuff. And also some oil and gas pipeline stuff and just being around the the scale of some of these big projects I found pretty inspiring and also being involved in both of these areas before they were developed and actually at these areas while they were big operations seeing the full spectrum of what can come from nothing really I found really inspiring and so I kept pursuing opportunities that brought me more into uh, yeah into the resource sector and that transition to we part I partnered with some guys that wanted to leverage some of these environmental tools for looking undercover in Nevada and having been involved in doing as I said both some baseline stuff as well as some pit lake stuff it, I had seen examples where some of the things that you might be looking for from an exploration perspective were or were there um, prior to making any sort of disturbance so to me it seemed very common sense. I hadn't really appreciated the novelty of it. I thought, oh, of course, everybody does this. So I ended up down in Nevada helping to start what's become the world's largest hydrogeochem-led exploration program. And so that was the first big jump going from environmental to exploration. And then I'd say the next big jump was we began the program in a fairly heady time in the market. We had access to lots of resources and 
we thought quite highly of ourselves, but not, we were a little naive in that everybody had access to a lot of resources. And just as the tap can turn on, the tap can turn off. And a few years in when the market cycles changed and we completely ran out of money and the lawyers and the accountants are like rats jumping off ships that are sinking, they all fled. <laughs> and the same group of technical minded guys that got this thing started were left now running a public company. And yeah, so I had to make another transition to now basically drawing the short straw. Someone had to figure out how to run the public company and that chapter began and that literally began with calling the stock exchange and saying, Hey, we don't know what we're doing and we don't have any money <laughs> and being handed the thousand page TSX corporate finance manual and told to read it twice and come back with any questions. Oh boy. And so we learned how to run a public company. And so I went from environmental to boots on the ground exploration to drawing the short straw to start doing the capital market stuff. And we ended up raising several tens of millions of dollars, executing a very big program. And then transitioning from running a very generative regional scale programs to drilling some of the most expensive, deepest holes in the state, some very specific targets that we found. So then transitioning to, okay, we, you've done the sort of big picture thing, but now you're really focused on this little project, but it's still freaking cover. You don't know anything about it. And you're using these very expensive drill holes. And so now trying to layer in all sorts of other sets of expertise and being an aggregator of good ideas. So several different stages to keep this path going. That's very different from what we've seen before. Would you say that undercover group is more of an aggregator of an ideas other than James, the geologist, the ge geochemist? Yeah, aggregator of good ideas, but also good people. I mean, as we, uh, I moved to Reno in 2003, so it's so 20 years ago, and it's been an aggregator of good people too. I like to think it's, it's more fun when we bring more brains to bear on these things. So good ideas and good people. That said, you mentioned how you and some of your colleagues just kind of got together and made this group. In that sense, I would ask any tips or advice to give our listeners that feel like they're on the cusp of a good idea that could possibly do something similar. I think I told you that when you asked if I wanted to do this, the evening before <laughs> I had listened to your talk with Dave Lowey. And he talked about his, what was the name of his randomness book? Oh, oh my goodness. You, it's still you read it. Yeah. Anyway, one of my favorite books is a book on randomness and it's called The Drunkard's Walk. And it's about how randomness rules our lives. And one of the things I took from the book is that in any given situation, the number of levers that we are in control of is probably a minority of the factors that are going to determine the outcome of whatever happens. And what that means is when things go really well, not to be too quick to congratulate ourselves, but similarly, when things go wrong, not to be too hard on ourselves. Um, and that the surest way to increase the chances of getting the outcome that you think is representative is to increase your N, which means getting up, <laughs> putting one foot in front of the other and trying again and just 
but yeah, increasing your N is, I guess, what my my uh, advice would be to folks is just don't give up. I like that a lot, and it it really makes a nice time then for us to leave that where it is. I think it was so nicely said to transition to uh, tea time. So I'm not sure what you've brought us, but <laughs> it's that time. So James, please spill. Yeah, well, I know what you want. You know, you want R-rated. No, you want PG-rated tea. I am because, not. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to judge what you... I judge nothing that anybody has ever brought me. Some of it has been better than others. It's usually produced some kind of chuckle, but not judging anybody. If it's R, yeah. it's R. Maybe not NC-17. We could do... Yeah, well, the problem with R is it's probably not appropriate for all audiences, nor fair to those that were involved. <laughs> uh, it's funny. I... I Simon Griffiths and I shared an apartment during PDAC. Oh and boy. we even showed up a few days early to help teach the MDRU course. So we were there together for a while, right? And I was fully expecting to be able to have some good stories. But my story sharing apartment with Simon is he I showed up and the fridge was full and I woke up every morning to eggs and toast and coffee that he made me. And he was an absolute <laughs> gentleman. So there's no tea there. Only coffee. Um but yeah. You know, I moved to Reno at 23, like I said, as a naive, not naive, but, you know, somewhat innocent Canadian <laughs> into the wilds of Nevada, knocking on doors, asking for water samples. And so certainly met all sorts of people and also other industry people. And there were times when we'd be out for a beer in Winnemucca and we'd, we'd go around the corner, not very far, it seemed like, and the pavement would turn to gravel and the street lights would turn to red lights. And, uh, and these were the strangest looking bars I've ever been to. And it, it did take me an embarrassingly long amount of time to understand where we had ended up and before having to try and politely uh, get myself out of there. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, just, uh, you know, trusting and all those things. But yeah, I wanted McLean shared some industry sort of tea and I thought maybe I'd share some industry tea. A few years in, we were doing quite well. We had, like I said, we had access to a fair amount of resources and we had picked up a very large land package. We we're something like the 10th largest claim holder in the state, this tiny little company. And this was just at the start or ended up leading into the, the GFC here. And the Nevada budget, state budget, is something like a $5 billion budget, but without gaming revenue coming in through the GFC, they're, they're facing something like a $2 billion budget shortfall and a $5 billion budget. And everyone was brought to Carson City to see what could happen. But the only thing that was doing well at the time was the price of gold. And so, again, bit naive, not really down there. And we woke up one morning finding that out that the, the budget committee had, had gone around saying, hey, we need to pass the hat. And hey, mining, you're doing really well. We need you to pitch in. And, and Newmont and Barrick, which were basically the two parties of the Nevada Mining Alliance, their, lo their lobbyists all got in the room and they said, yeah, yeah we'd love to, we need to do our part. We know. But instead of collecting it the way you'd like to collect it from production, we'd like you to collect it through claim fees. And the people in the room, these state legislators that meet once every two years in Nevada, they're not professional politicians for the most part said, okay, that's fine. You pay it any way you want. <laughs> so 
What they hadn't understood is 99.9% of all the claims in the state are held by small juniors that have zero revenue. And so we woke up to a 1300% increase in our state claim fees. <laughs> and so we had to start a, a nonprofit to split the cost of hiring our own lobbyists and go to battle. And anyway, it all sorted out. But the, the, the reason I say this is not to shame on the big miners, but it's really because I know you, you try and target having some younger listeners and we are all in this together whether it's the service providers, the juniors coming up with some good ideas or the majors. And it was just such a good example of the short-sightedness that that sort of prevails when everyone puts their blinders on. It was a hectic, crazy time in the Wild West and Carson City, but yeah, we're all in this together. <laughs> oh my God, I love that story. That's so funny. I mean... Yeah, it, it, not it, a bit... It, in a Nevada way, I guess. I mean, so so listeners, I'm American myself and I'm from New York and I have all these prejudices towards every other single state, whether it's in New England or it's in somewhere out West because everything I think West of New York City is West. So <laughs> I think it just kind of tickles my fancy just to <laughs> hear something so so silly like that. Okay, cool. Thank you for sharing. All right, today we're going to talk about something really interesting, and I think it really all starts with the title of this episode, which is starting from knowing nothing to putting a few holes in it, which I love, something that James threw out there. But we're going to go through this bit of a journey today where you guys will see this evolve. We're going to talk about regional scale groundwater sampling and then all the way up to the camp scale using PXRF to increase your turnaround time for understanding what exactly is in the ground. To start our conversation, James, could you first introduce us to your paper, Parts Per Trillion Gold in Groundwater, Can We Believe It? And what is anomalous and how do we use it? Sure, that paper was, was the Hydrogeochem talk from Exploration 17. Everyone had to put a paper together. and. The biggest set of questions we get when we present our work is parts per trillion, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it's really un. Sorry, it, it's no different than any other geochem method. With respect to, we all need to know what the backgrounds are, what's anomalous, what the detection limits are, and. Um, without the benefit of being able to look at some pretty big data sets and having to. Uh, work with multiple labs and really run the QAQC stuff to ground. Most people without the, the familiarity of having to look at those data sets don't have the basis to weigh in on the appropriateness of these sorts of methods. If, if, if their boss says, hey, I heard someone sampling the water in their wells, should we do an art project? And a geologist who hasn't had any opportunity to be presented with that sort of stuff doesn't really have a basis for responding with anything other than, oh, you know, that sounds complicated. So the hope with that paper was really to put together the answers to the biggest questions that we get wherever we go. And compared to where the literature was when we began our own program to where it is today, there are lots of really good case studies now, multiple parts of the world. And what we find is 
there's people collecting water in different in physiographic environments with different you know, rainfall regimes using different field protocols, sending them to labs with different analytical protocols. And what's really interesting is you begin looking at all of this different work and the results are just so similar. And water just by its nature is so homogenous. It is such a wonderful sampling medium. You can collect a liter of water today, tomorrow, the next day, and it's the same water. And the averaging that goes on is so powerful and the ability to then use that to really spread your net out. When we work, we use on a generative basis, we're collecting one sample per square kilometer. And that's based on modeling the hydrogen chemistry at 30 plus deposits and understanding they're all different and not getting too caught up with absolute values, but nowhere in the literature had really aggregated all of those sorts of case studies and put them all together. So that was our hope with that. And like I said, the takeaway is groundwater is a fantastic sampling medium. It naturally has a huge averaging component, which means the data is extremely not noisy. The contrast in the data is actually surprisingly very high compared to a soils program, for instance, where maybe two or three or four times background might be something that you want to pay attention to. Uh, we're generally responding to orders of magnitude increases. The contrast is really high in these data sets. And in, in some ways, it's almost binary because, as I said, there's we don't get too caught up with absolute values on a regional perspective. There's so many, it is complicated. People go, it's so complicated. You don't know where the groundwater came from and you you know, how long, what was the residence time and how oxidized is it is? You know, what portion of the deposits actually exposed to the groundwater? And those are all excellent questions and excellent sources of site-specific variability. But even within those, um, that, that noise of variability, we still find these super high contrast anomalies. And it's almost binary, like I said, on a regional basis, it's background, boom, something changes. That's a reason to zoom in and learn and learn more. And again, my confidence and comfort in being able to make those large generalizations is only a function of being able to have looked at very large data sets. And uh, so we wanted to, yeah, share those takeaways with people who haven't had a chance to look at such large data sets. And then on the complete flip side of that, to bookend this conversation, while I don't have it posted on the website, guys, I also want to dive into a talk that you gave at the IAGS in Chile last year about building a new PXRF workflow to provide near-time lithogeochemistry for guiding decisions on your active drill holes in your Nevada programs. Could you summarize what that was about so that we can then jump into some more of our Q&A? Sure. You can do the world's best generative program and you can throw whatever your favorite tools are at it, whether predictive tools or um, detection tools, but invariably you're gonna end up with some targets or hopefully you end up with some targets at which point you need to transition at some point to putting some drill holes in these targets. And particularly when you're working in a covered environment where you don't have the benefit of uh, maybe already understanding the stratigraphy or the scale of some of the features you're looking at, whether it's structural or alteration, it's your job or our job to extract as much information of the, from these drill holes as possible and also be able to leverage that information almost instantaneously because the minute you finish TDing one hole, you're coloring the next one within 12 hours. So 
the immediacy that's required in order to be able to extract as much information as possible from one drill hole before moving the other becomes amplified. It's not like you're grid drilling an infill program to upgrade your reserves, right? You're answering one specific question after another in a specific order. And what you've learned today needs to inform how you make decisions tomorrow. And in our case, at our project with our rocks, the challenge we faced was so many of our units look the same, or they're visually indistinguishable. And then you go alter the crap out of them, this massive hydrothermal system, and then you try and tease them apart when you couldn't even really tell them apart to begin with. And so in these Carlin systems, it's very common that while the whole package might be made up of favorable units, for whatever reason, one unit gets the joy. And so once you've figured that out in a system, you need to know if, you, if, you, if you've reached it in your drill hole, if you've gone through it, if it had turned on, if it not turned on. All the rocks are visually indistinguishable. How do you know if you hit it? How do you improve your structural understanding of your model if you can't peg your contacts? So trying to improve the resolution of our geologic understanding in real time was our goal here. And actually working with Simon, we came up, we, we looked at the four acid data, we came up with a number of elements uh, that we could use, um, some element ratios that did a pretty good job of pegging these otherwise indistinguishable units. And then what we did was, these were elements that weren't usually conventionally considered when using PX. Most people in these environments use the PX ref as an arsenic sniffer, or a qualitative pathfinder indicator. So what we did was, we looked at how we could focus the instrument, if you will, our understanding to be able to get quantitative information. So we could start doing some of this math element ratios to peg out these units and replicate the workflow we could use with the four acid data, but do it hours behind the drill bit, ideally. And it all, it worked fantastic. And it, it, it was a big factor in how we planned our drilling program. That's really cool. And, and it was a really great talk. So everybody. As you can probably tell from our little intro just now, this is going to be a really different conversation from those that we've had before, because we're going to now take two extremely different topics, this hydrogeochem regional work and quantitative uh, PXRF camp scale work. And we're going to now investigate how they come together, or as James said in like an earlier conversation that we had, uh, how they bookend each other. Um, and by the end of this episode, the hope is that we're going to pull this all together to satisfy the title of this episode, which, like I said, I love, starting from knowing nothing to putting a few holes in it. To start out, for those of us who haven't spent any time in Nevada, uh, James, could you start by painting a picture of why we're going to need this regional scale geochemistry tool and what led you towards looking at groundwater? Yeah, Nevada is not dissimilar from other mature search spaces in that the rocks sticking out of the ground are been very well explored by some really good people and have generated some incredible reserves in terms of their mineral endowment. And there's no reason to expect that the residual endowment in the 50 plus percent of the state that sits out undercover now doesn't mimic what's uh, been exposed. But what do you do when the average basin in Nevada is 500 to 1,000 square kilometers. And what we know about these Carlin systems, that was our, that's our target, is geology can change very quickly. So 
you can project your favorite structure and your favorite unit a thousand meters out under cover, maybe two thousand meters under cover. But what do you do when these basins are a thousand square kilometer? And in the absence of good geochemical tools, the pendulum has swung to a lot of emphasis on predictive tools, a lot of geophysical tools, and there have been some really good state-scale geophysical programs that help map some massive basin-scale features that might be of interest. You can map all the relatively shallow pediments that are suggestive of some adjacent to some massive structures where the range front geology suggests the, the favorable units aren't too deep. It's not some massive structure and there's some alteration in the range front. You limit the state to those areas and you're still left with hundreds of pediments of interest. We needed a geochemical detection-based filter to still reduce this massive search base. And without getting too much into the background of it, so the USGS had done some work around some of the big deposits that had shown the viability of specifically the golden groundwater footprint surrounding these big systems extended several thousand meters, two, three, four thousand meters away from these deposits, which we've later confirmed again by modeling about 30 something deposits. And so all of a sudden we could begin to cast a net where we could use, as I mentioned already, one sample per square kilometer. And we were able to cast this relatively inexpensive geochemical net to begin to systematically reduce these basins. We weren't biasing our efforts based on our favorite prospect in the range front. We weren't trying to get lucky. This wasn't poke and hope. We would be able to do this sort of systematic regional scale programs, similar to the stream set programs in Northern BC or the, the big massive regional scale programs that have traditionally opened up new search spaces. We were able to then replicate those sort of traditional workflows using these new tools to open up the undercover half of Nevada. And so that's super neat talking about this regional scale exploration that you guys did. But now zoom us in from this regional to the camp scale. And what were some of the big technical hurdles that you had to overcome to execute something in this case, especially that few had tried before? It goes back to something I said earlier is like you can do the best regional program in the world and, and you still have to then figure out how to de-risk your targets. Mm. And one of the things that we had to do in order to execute these programs was we we weren't faced with a existing network of ranches and wells and springs and windmills neatly spaced every kilometer across the desert. And so one of the things we had to figure out was how to inexpensively drill holes where we wanted purpose-drilled boreholes to collect groundwater samples. And it led us to modifying and developing two new sampling platforms that allowed us to get our marginal cost per sample point at the time to about $1,000 per borehole. Again, we're adding geochemistry at $1,000 per square kilometer. So for a 500 square kilometer basin, you know, south of a massive camp such as Cortez, let's say, for half a million dollars writing geochemistry across the entire basin. And owning that equipment gave us the advantage of being able to continue to tighten our sampling density when we had areas of interest. When we did this massive program, we drilled 5,000 boreholes across Nevada. <laughs> when we did have a target, we were able to tighten the net tighter and tighter. 
And what we found was just as I mentioned, the contrast in these data sets compared to other GCHEM mediums such as soils, for instance, is the contrast is really high. And what that means is as you actually get within a camp, you can still play within the huge slope, if you will, and tease out some vectors over some very short distances. And so while we may have reduced a basin from 500 to 1,000 square kilometer size basin down to a target that was 30 or 40 square kilometers, that's still too big to start poking drill holes in it. We were able to then drill a tighter net of these hydrogen chem boreholes to really constrain the hydrogen chem anomaly to, again, a transition from what was a, a very interesting camp scale target down to some actionable drill target. So what we found was by owning the equipment to uh, provide inexpensive dense, increase the density inexpensively, we were able to add a layer of information that really hadn't been used before. Groundwater chemistry is, in all the case studies that I mentioned so far, the groundwater chemistry is always a regional scale tool. It's never a camp scale tool. And so we were able to really demonstrate its value, continue value as we zoom in. And so how did you tend to select the depths that you guys drilled at? Or did you also, I remember from your paper, there was this one example where you collected samples from multiple depths as well. Yeah, well, you have to permit me to nerd out a little bit here, but. The, That's what this podcast is for. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's this perception. I mean, a, a well-founded perception, anyone who's taken even a basic hydrology course, that the, the sample closest to bedrock is going to be the best sample in terms of um, appropriateness for representing what that location's, you know, the representative hydrogen chemistry of that location is the sample right above bedrock. And it's true. And there's this bias that groundwater moves from left to right, high falls high to low hydraulic conductivity. And there's this lateral movement. Well, there is this lateral movement, but there's also a huge vertical component. And in, in arid environments where the groundwater doesn't move that quickly, the chemical dispersion vertically is actually pretty impressive. And what we found having the ability to collect multiple samples downhole over and over and again, we think, okay, we need to spend the big bucks to bring in an RC rig to profile the hydrogen chemistry in three dimensions. Guess what? It's true. We got way better data modeling these things, taking samples every 10 meters down hole, modeling these hydrogen chem plumes in 3D and seeing where they went back to. And guess what? The data sets are amazing. But the other thing you find is within that anomalous plume, if you will, even the shallowest sample is a screaming anomaly. And so on a generative basis, when you're it's almost binary, 0, 0, 0, 0, 1, any sample was a good sample. If you, if you don't get too caught up in the absolute values, and you're just looking for um, reasons to, to go back and collect more samples and learn more about an area and eliminate 99% of your search base. What we found was actually these shallow samples were the highest um, bang for the buck. And so when people ask us, what do we do? You know what, honestly, on a generative first pass base, any groundwater sample is a good sample. We can talk more about the value of big data sets and, and stuff like that. I hope we do, but yeah, 3D modeling these data sets in 3D, super fun. But honestly, the highest value sample is the first sample because it's the cheapest to get and move on and take another and another is really the high value workflow when you're in a generative environment. Just thinking about it now, 
what you guys are sampling being in the Carlin district was the gold free gold was it caught up in any kind of pyrite were you also getting other elements in your water sample absolutely our workflow included collecting um, full metal analysis samples we're looking for gold plus a full suite of Carlin pathfinders arsenic antimony mercury thallium and in terms of whether it's what the complex is that the gold's traveling in it's probably not just flowing around in native gold whether it's a sulfide complex or some sort of chloride complex we did not do a huge amount of work around how and why the gold moves what we did do a lot of work on is the distance that it travels because that was the question that we needed to answer in order to design our sampling programs and what we found as i mentioned there's lots of site specific sources of variability and every project and every deposit is different but when you stack 10 20 30 of these case studies together and you get to plot distance from source versus concentration the curves end up being very similar and by the time you get two three four maybe five thousand meters away from these deposits the gold basically goes back down to less than detection for our current detection limits so for us we were more focused on what's the scale of these anomalies what's the sampling density that we need to respond to them and we didn't get too caught up in exactly the the mechanism of transport mm -hmm. okay so after chatting about that for quite some time i'm wondering now let's just keep it going forward zooming in a little bit something that you had mentioned earlier was that you guys had the need to improve the quality of the pxrf data mostly from what we were originally talking about with your need for litho geochem and how that was really helpful for your program were there any other reasons that you guys wanted it to be more quantitative and also how did you guys transition from using this as a qualitative tool to towards something more quantitative the answer to your first question what else did we want to do with it having more multi-element geochemistry that you trust is a good thing for lots of reasons when you're working at a project where you don't have very many drill holes and you're trying to put the, the project together so yeah we had some pre preconceived notions of what we'd like to do with the data but um i'm sure there's things that we don't yet know that we could do with the data that we might be able to do with the data it, our drive was to as close as possible mimic what we were able to do with the four acid data in terms of querying the data by having as many elements as we could that were reporting as accurately as possible from the PXRF. And the way we got there was increasing our sample size. I, I'm going to misquote the number of samples that we've got four acid data on as well as PXRF data on, but it's somewhere more than 2,000 and less than 3,000. So we ended up spending a lot of money and a lot of time building a large enough data set to be able to tease out exactly what worked for our rocks at our project we took some unconventional approaches for calibrating the the results but the key really was big orientation program this wasn't shoot 30 rocks this was shoot 3000 rocks and the patterns that came out were just laser focused clear it was really easy it wasn't um yeah so big data sets was the answer.
Because there's, lo- there's lots of variability. When you're using a PXRF instrument and you're trying to extract a point measurement <laughs> from a very small point and extrapolate that over rocks that change very quickly, um, it's an incredibly heterogeneous environment, right? And so the data is inherently noisy. What I say is we got to, it was about embracing the heterogeneity and understanding that the only way to conquer heterogeneity was like massively oversample in terms of sampling time, sampling intervals, all these things. But the cost of doing so with the PXR are relatively low, but the massive oversampling, and oversampling is the wrong word, but in dialing up the sampling was what overcame the heterogeneity and it worked really well. I think now we, we have our bookends. Let's deviate from them for a moment because your paper that we read touched on something that we always get hammered with in exploration, which is cost. And I think your perspective coming from both the science side and the corporate side is going to be interesting for everyone to listen to. In the Beskard et al. paper's conclusion, one remark is that while the cost per sample from purpose-drilled boreholes is high, the value of the information on a cost per area basis offers the potential to open up a new covered search base for exploration. Because not everyone may have read the paper, could you sum up the findings in context of how we as geochemists can sell a survey like this to corporate? The hardest thing that I've had to do in the industry is get people to write checks. It's not hard to convince somebody of a good idea, but actually getting someone to open up their checkbook (laughs) and give you money is not easy. And whether or not that's on the public market stage, or if you're fighting for budget within a major, and it's your annual, everyone's putting their projects on the wall for the annual budget allocations. Getting people to write checks is the hardest thing I've ever done. I am always thinking about what we're doing from an information per dollar basis. And, and in a generative space, it's an information per area per dollar space. And that always has to come with a clear understanding of the gates that you're trying to clear at a given stage of a project. What is the specific question that you need to answer in order to make a menu? And then what is it, what are the various options and the costs to acquire the information to, to make those decisions and understanding that gated decision-making process is really important because you need to be able to articulate that to the people that are writing the check saying, look, these, this X amount of money that we need to answer this question, this might be step two on a 10 step process to making a discovery. So we're not expecting this X amount of money to deliver the discovery. We're expecting this amount of money to answer this question. that's going to de-risk the entire project. That's going to increase its value greater than the dollar cost to acquire the information. And I remember pitching what we were doing to the Rio Tinto guys in Vancouver, and they were very dogmatic in a good way about uh, how they looked at all the opportunities. And it was the the size of the prize, the cost to test, and the likelihood of being successful. And the likelihood 
of being successful multiplied by the size of the prize better be higher than the cost to test. <laughs> We're not going to win every one of these bets, but if we can't stay on that side of the equation, we're not going to put ourselves in a position to create value. It's about being clear about what it is that we need to do to de-risk the search space at that stage to get it to the next stage to make a go, no go decision. And the thing of what we found about hydrogeochemistry is there was not another layer of information that we could add for a thousand dollars a square kilometer that could otherwise reduce these vast basins down to discrete projects. And I think that way of thinking is critical for us to get back to as an industry to create value because the other approach is to go to data rich environments, which are in some ways perceived to be less risky. We know more, they're more certain, but that certainty bias that we've exercised in industry for the last 20 years has been value destroying. We continue to spend $2 as an industry to find $1 of value. So finding out ways to step out from our comfort zone, which are these data rich old prospects to, the, to opening up these new search bases, we need a geochem layer that we could, similar to flying a geophysical survey over 500 square kilometers, we need a geochem survey we could fly over 500 square kilometers that could add value at, at a similar cost point. I think that was the, being able to add geochemistry for a thousand dollars square kilometer was what allowed us to not be one of the groups sitting on the edge of the basin going, we know there's another 200 million ounces down there. We just don't know where to start. <laughs> we know they're down there, but man, those basins are big and drilling's really expensive, <laughs> right? Well, if you can eliminate 99% of it, it's not you're going to land with guaranteed wins. But I believe that if you can replicate those sorts of workflows and make sure that the you're going after big fucking deposits and that you're doing everything you can to increase your chance of being successful and everything you can do to lower your cost to test, that those are our levers to getting back to creating value as an industry. That's in a nutshell how we were thinking about this the whole way along. We were going after finding the next 50 to 100 million ounce Carlin camp. There's three of them sticking out of the ground. Statistically, there should be three of them undercover. These footprints are big. We can find them with big nets. We found a tool that we can use inexpensively over big areas. It just seemed like there wasn't, there was no better workflow and no better prize. That's really what drove our enthusiasm and our whole program. I'll double down on two of your points there, especially for our younger listeners. I worked in sales for quite a number of years and I worked for a technology company. And the biggest problem that we always had for people coming to us and saying, I want to do some hyperspectral work. And the question was, okay, well, what's your question? And a lot of people didn't form those questions. Number one, it's so important to articulate your question for as much as you do it as either an undergraduate, in your PhD, in your master's, it's still so important to do that. Science still must be followed, even when we're working in something as cowboy as exploration, right? And the other thing is that, yes, to get somebody to, to write a check is very difficult, as I discovered over many years. But if you can have that whole context, the questions, and then what the deliverables, all of that articulated, then it's much easier to open up that checkbook. And that's something that I both 
discovered in a way myself, but then also through the guidance of working with a lot of great geoscientists over the course of my career now. Those are two really great points and something that definitely our younger listeners needed to hear. Thanks for bringing those points up. I also think it's really relevant right now, specifically in the junior sector, because there's this lament that money's really hard to raise and it's tough out there right now. But I've been approached recently by a number of groups looking to figure out how to position their program for the sea summer season here. And very often their approach is, okay, we're going to go raise $5 million because it seems like a good number and it's a good size relative to our market cap. And we're going to go spend it because we ought to keep our camp active and we can't do nothing this summer. And we're going to basically see if we can get lucky. <laughs> you know, yeah. can we tag something that radically re-rates our story simply by continuing to drill our program for another summer? And the question to them is, well, what is the next piece of information that's going to re-rate your story relative to where it is today? And understanding the question, like you just said, is so important. And it's just mind-blowing to me how often I'm, I meet groups that, that don't understand what their question is. And, 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 and you can't de-risk a project systematically, and you can't put yourself in a position to create value if you don't understand the gates that you're going to use to de-risk your idea. I love that this turned into uh, a bit of a de-risking chat for this moment here. <laughs> I love that. And I think, though, it's so pertinent. And geochemists, just, just keep this in mind because we're always struggling to get money for our own budget. So just listen to this section again to gain inspiration because that's all you need to do. You need to tell people why it's important to not just sample the ore zone, why it's important to sample the entire drill hole. Etc. The list goes on. Also, listen to Juan Carlos Ordonius's talk where he goes off on this, stands on his soapbox about this too. It's so important for us to also use this platform to remind ourselves that geochemistry is important. It is crucial, and all that. There's so many different ways that we can do it, but we just have to really define what the value is for our specific program to achieve actual products, deliverables, etc. And Thank you, James, for bringing this up. That said, let's just quickly shift gears. Can we not shift gears? Can we, okay, can we, we can go continue. one deeper? Yeah, let's just keep going. Okay. Oh, going down the board. Well, you, you just like, you triggered a few things. Actually, there's some tea in there. Um, oh, I love it. <laughs> Guys, we're headed back to tea time. Hold pause. <laughs> yeah, my beer's empty too. Yeah, I lost my tequila a few sips ago. <laughs> When we were doing our big regional scale program and we were knocking on doors and we knocked on 2000 doors to collect water so samples. Explain this to me. You just asked people to just open up their faucets. You took a sample and that was like for your background say. Well, we didn't know what was background, which is uh -huh. where I'm going okay. with this here. And one of our team members who won't be mentioned was very good at out sampling us on a samples per day basis always continually came back with the most samples but also the same person was routinely good at collecting samples that came back with zero gold in them <laughs> and so it was easy for us to make a joke about it but the truth is, is that huge network of zeros those thousand zeros those 1500 zeros whatever it was across the state of nevada was the context that then we're able to start teasing out anomalies and so the value in zero is actually 
really high. The zeros are just as fucking important as the one. They're not a failure, guys. Not a failure. No, they're not a it's failure. Data. So when you're advocating mm -hmm. for a budget, everyone wants to see the orientation line over the deposit. And I'm so tired of seeing case studies and vendors and PhD theses where they got an X or two parallel transacts across a, and they show, oh, isn't this great? Well, fuck, like, we have no clue what background is. We have no clue what the regional distribution of anything is at this point, right? And so, the like I said, the value of a zero is just as important as the value of the anomaly. And when you're trying to fund these programs, that is so often lost. And we haven't got into machine learning yet. Maybe at the end, we can tie it back to that. But one thing I heard recently that I was super impressed about is the Aussie government's doing this NDI, this National Drilling Initiative, where they're hopefully going to try and use the coal tube rig to begin to put these pierce points at, across the entire freaking country to provide some physical rock properties, some geology, some geochemistry that you can then be able to constrain your inversions, but put some regional scale structural interpretations, do the big picture stuff to open up these vast covered areas. But rather than looking at using a regularized grid, they're doing these really cool things where they're layering everything they know about these things and where all these data sets hang together and nothing changes. Well, guess what? The, the complexity is low, adding more drill holes in there, not high value. But when your existing data sets begin, all the domaining and relationships that you like begin to completely fall apart, that's a really good place to add a drill hole. <laughs> that's a high value place to resolve where these things begin to change. And so we're now off on sampling theory and stuff like that, but that's what I was trying to get into. <laughs> yeah. Okay, good. Because I think that's what's super freaking cool. Zeros are important and context is important. And if you don't have the large architecture in which you can begin to hang these data sets, we all get lost in these like super small pinpricks where we know a lot and we never leave them. We can't tie these things together because we don't have the regional data sets that provide the skeleton. So that's my little bit of, you know, the anomalies are important. The zeros are also just as important. And uh, a tiny bit of tea. And I mean, the amount, right? You can't just say, okay, well, I have 50 samples and they're all from the entire state of Nevada. What is statistically meaningful, right? And so I think that that point, we want to talk about having actionable workflows. The, the sample size is important too, and understanding that by planning ahead of time, right? Having that thought process to, guys, when you graduate, Science doesn't stop. Like you have to take everything that you learned as a student and apply it when doing any kind of study in the real world. Because the real world, we're still doing science. Some of it may be pseudoscience, and that's the stuff that you just gotta take with a grain of salt, maybe laugh a little bit at, and just turn away from their booth because it's crap. Look for, if somebody can't answer a very simple technical question, then they're probably not doing anything that they should be doing. Anything you uh, else you want to say, database size? Well, yeah. I, I'm remiss because I can't remember the source and I hope that someone listening can jog my memory, but there, there's a GCAM paper out there that says until you've got somewhere between a 500 and a thousand samples, you don't know anything. And, and I've done this enough to know that whether or not you're trying to begin a new soil method, perhaps you're interested in a different size fraction because you moved in somewhere different and you're expecting different results, or you're trying to integrate some data sets so because the lab methods have changed until you've got, or you're trying to integrate four acid data with PXRF data until you've got 
500, I'd say close to a thousand samples. It's really hard to know where your preconceived notions fall apart. Your little orientation survey over your deposit may fall apart when you realize that there's five more anomalies out there over barren ground that look exactly the same, right? We all go into these things with some ideas of what we think we're going to see. We bring our own biases and based on our experience of this set of rocks at this part of the world over to this other part of the world with a completely different set of rocks. And until we have some fairly large data sets, we don't really know what's going on. Is something I'd advocate for. When you're trying to get your budget, you're not looking for enough money to do a tiny orientation program. You're looking for the money to do a big orientation program. So swing for the fences when you're asking for your budget allocation. Yeah. And plan your contingencies. Never forget a contingency uh, in your budget because things always go wrong, as has happened to myself. <laughs> All right. So lastly, I'd like just to end on a very philosophical note. I think that we've had some good technical content. We stood in some, so now let's go to philosophy. Um, <laughs> and again, perhaps this is going to border on my discussion with uh, Juan Carlos that we chatted about that episode, we talked extensively about changing corporate perspectives on geochemistry, changing the mindset from geochem as an expense to an exploration mining company's biggest asset. Um, here, though, I'd just like to talk about your perspectives on pushing new ideas or good old ones uh, forward. And I think your perspectives, again, just from both a junior minor corporate side and also a technical position, make this conversation all the more relevant and compelling. I'm hard pressed to add more than we've added the concept of gates and knowing your question and being able to articulate that to your stakeholders is so important and because it's also your only opportunity to define the meter stick by which a program is ultimately measured and if the expectations of an early stage program are that you're going to deliver a mine plan, you're going to fail. <laughs> Part of defining the gate and defining the question is defining what a success means. And I think we miss that. The idea that we're going to go spend some money, hope that we get lucky in uncovering a card on the flop that re-rates the project is, as my colleague Wade says, hope is not a strategy. <laughs> <laughs> understanding the gates and not, like I said, missing the opportunity to, to define for yourself what a success is. Because if your stakeholders don't align with that and they don't want to fund that, then that's fine. <laughs> Do something else. But if, if that's what gets funded, you've reached what you consider to be a success. Everybody's disappointed because you haven't delivered a mind plan, let's say. You're not going to then get the funding to answer your next question and your next question. That is my advice to everybody is just being super clear that all the stakeholders are on board of what the question is and what defines success, because that ultimately is going to provide the continuity of funding to allow a program to continue. I love that. With that, I just want to say thanks so much for being here. And I hope that everyone out there listening has now a few more nuggets towards making geochem non-negotiable at any company that they're at and really in any stage of the project that they're at. We've talked today from regional to camp scale using a medium that's not very common because didn't you all know that this podcast is also about me building a geocamp <laughs> <laughs>
again, thank you all for listening to Geochemistry. Big thanks to James Buscard for stopping by the show, dishing quite a bit of tea and taking us on this technical and also corporate geochem journey. Thanks to our sponsor, LKI Consulting, and it's Water Coma Media for our music. And I'm looking forward to chatting with y'all next month, and we're going to be talking about the geochemistry of high sulfidation deposits.